yourselves now, that'd be great. <clears throat> hey, Terry. Great. Let's see. Let me get to gallery view. There we go. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to back to our class. I uh, hope you appreciated Paul and Allison's teaching last Sunday. Certainly Janice and I did. Very, very encouraging, practical, helpful. If we did everything they taught us, we'd have no conflict. So we are back to Romans 7. We'll finish, Lord willing, Romans 7 today. Uh, this is a passage that's uh, drawn no small amount of difference of interpretive opinions. But let me pray for us and we'll dive right in. Hopefully you can access the handout and will help you immensely to follow if you, if you find the handout there on the webpage. We are grateful, Lord, Lord of glory, Lord of our life, Lord of hope, Lord of all creation, Lord of our salvation, to be together this morning. Thank you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, the way you use this dear servant. Thank you for the things he's written us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Send that same spirit to our hearts and minds to give us understanding, to bring us light, to transform our hearts into Christ's likeness, and that we might be increasingly conformed to his image and equipped to battle sin. Thank you for the victory we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Here's the text, Romans 7, 14 to 25. And uh, let me just encourage you to uh, listen, carefully. What, listen carefully to what kind of person writes this. What kind of person writes this? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, everybody push mute. I'm going to wait till you've muted all of your uh, Zooms, please. I can hear somebody out there in Zoom land. Get, get on your mute buttons. Thank you. So let's, let's, let's frame our uh, consideration of this text with these brief summaries of where Paul has brought us. Think of, think of entering this text, Romans 7, 14 to 25, coming through a doorway, and the two sides of the door are you have a new relationship to sin and a new relationship to the law. New relationship to sin, 
Paul unpacks this in 6, 1 to 23. Reminder, through union with Christ, the Christian is not struggling to be free, but free to struggle. The believer is free from the penalty and the power of sin, but not its presence. Christ has paid the penalty. Our circumcision, uh, our circumcised hearts means that sin no longer keeps us uh, it, it's t- under its taskmaster, its slaves. We're no longer under the dominion of sin, but it is still with us, present with us. Then that first imperative in the book of Romans, verse 11, tells us that our identity shapes our behavior. He tells us in verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Great way to begin the day. Think of yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And then we assert that in this life we never advance beyond fighting sin daily. That's what the Christian does. You woke up, if you're in union with Christ this morning, you're no longer in union with Adam. That means you're not at peace with sin. You're at war with sin. Sin is at war with you. So the second commandment in the book of Romans, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its passions. It's epithemia, it's lusts. First commandment in, in uh, first imperative in Romans, think of yourself this way. You're in union with Christ. You don't have to sin. Second, Don't let sin reign. Sin wants to reign constantly. The rest of your life, sin is going to want to reign to create a shadow rule in you. Christ rules truly. Sin wants to usurp that rule. Second doorway, as it were, second frame on the doorway into this passage. You have a new relationship to the law. This is what Paul unpacks in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We died to the law through our union with Christ. Verse 4, you died to the law through the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ. So now the law can make no legal claim on you. And what would be the legal claim of the law? It's simply this. If you don't obey the law perfectly, you die. You pay the penalty of eternal uh, anguish apart from the presence of God. The law can no longer do that because Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law in his righteous life. He's fulfilled the penalty of the law through his death on the cross. So the law can make no legal claim on you. Uh, don't forget your mute buttons, those of you joining me late. So, verses uh, chapter 7, 7 through 13, we reminded that the law stipulates what sin is. Verse 7, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what the law is. In Paul's case, it was the commandment not to covet that crushed his sense of being a good Pharisee. The law stimulates sin. When, when we're converted, the law has a way. In verse 9, when the law came, sin uh, came, and I died, that good person he fashions himself to be, died. The law condemns sin. Through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. And the law steers us from sin. He asserts, verse 12, the commandment is good, righteous, and holy. You may hear echoes of that long, wonderful meditation in the Old Testament, Psalm 119, on the law of God. Those are some of the functions of the law. Second page. So let's be really clear about what kills. Paul does not want the law to be on trial as the bad thing. What kills, the real problem, is sin. However, let's note this. The law, if used for self-justification, in other words, if you're a person that says, the way to be right with God is through your own efforts, 
The way to be accepted in God's presence is through what you do, duty, keeping the law, giving God what he requires. The law then becomes an instrument of self-deception producing death. You'll only kill yourself by it because the law cannot produce what it prescribes. It prescribes perfection and holiness. It can never produce it. Sin, verse 11, he says, deceived me and through the law killed me. Sin deceived me thinking I could keep the law. So when you're just a good church-going person before you're converted, sin is at work deceiving you, thinking, oh, if you're a good person, God will accept you. Massive deception, totally untrue. Sin was doing a number on you. Verse 13, sin produced death in me through what is good. It used the law to kill me. And then here's the third thing in terms of the frame as we enter this text. Let's apply those two things to your experience with these two simple questions. Do Christians sin? Yes. Do Christians not sin? Do they do righteousness? Yes. We're not living lives of complete sin. That's what being in union with Adam is like. We're in union with Christ. Christ through his spirit is producing in us righteousness, obedience, bearing fruit, good things. So then Paul says, I'm confused. Verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. Now, it's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical device because he's going to unpack where his understanding is going to come from. But he says, I don't understand my own actions. My behavior doesn't comport with my theology. What's my theology? Well, my status is one thing, union with Christ, not Adam. I'm free from sin as a taskmaster. And my sinning is another thing. I do things I don't want to do. So here's this quandary, right? I'm... Uh, well, let's, uh, let's just keep, let's look, look at the next point on the handout. Here's how he teases out what he doesn't understand. Why aren't I keeping the law fully? Because I'm freed from the power of sin, Romans 6, 6, we're no longer slaves to sin. I've entered the realm of the new creation in union with Jesus Christ. I've been raised with Christ. I'm alive spiritually. He then says in chapter 7, verse 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. And at the end of 6, he says that if you're in union with Christ, you've been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. So given all of that, why do I still feel like I'm a slave to sin? Here's his answer. The Christian lives in a tension. Yes, I'm already participating in the new creation. The Spirit is alive in me. I'm producing spiritual good, spiritual fruit, but no, I'm not yet there totally already. The, the, the new creation coming where there is no sin has not arrived. We're still slugging it out in this world that has fallen and racked with sin. So in this present age, we struggle while longing for this conflict between the old humanity and the new to be over. Christians struggle with sin. We long for a time when we're through with sin. So to put it in Romans 6 terms then, when we give into temptation, we're letting sin reign momentarily, forgetting that it's been rendered powerless. Or to put it in Romans 6 terms, you didn't consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You forgot who you were. If you remember who you were, 
and you were accessing all the means God gives you when temptation knocks on the door, you would not give in to it. So this is beginning to explain why it's easy to lapse into sin. Then it raises the question, what does such an existence feel like? How do we experience this tension in our lives? We experience the tension of being in union with Christ, but at war with sin, as success and failure. Do you ever feel like a walking contradiction? Yes. So sanctification feels messy and slow. Sanctification feels messy and slow. We keep, keep tripping ourselves up. That's why every Sunday in our worship service we have something called the confession of sin followed by the assurance of pardon. If we weren't struggling with sin, if Christians never sinned, why would we have that as a part of our worship service? By having that in our worship service, we're saying something significant about our theology. We still struggle with sin and we fail. So here's the maxim. The more holy you become, the less holy you feel. And I think this text validates that. Is that your experience? The longer you've grown as a Christian, the more, the stronger sin seems to be. You continue to fail. You continue to stumble. So because I continue to sin, it feels like a bondage. Now, the reason I'm putting it this way, I'm stressing feeling, is because uh, some commentators, Reformed commentators, have looked at this passage and have said this couldn't be a mature Christian because of the language that's used. Think about um, Paul saying, I am of flesh, sold under sin. That, wait a minute, isn't he contradicting what he said in 6, that now we're freed from sin? And then he says, I have no ability to carry it out. But just a second, I thought you lived in newness of life and you're not a slave to sin. What do you mean you have no ability to carry it out? Paul says, I keep doing evil. How could a Christian say that? Verse 23, sin makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So you look at these things and some commentators have said, no way could this be describing a mature Christian struggling with sin. Other commentators do believe that. That's the view I'm taking. You can respectfully disagree because you'd have many famous commentators on your side. But I'm taking the view that what you have in these verses is a description of a growing, mature Christian, an increasingly tender conscience, increasingly aware of the power and the operation of sin, recognizing constant failures. That's the picture that we have here because, here's evidence for that, Paul, and we'll unpack this in a second, Paul says the law is spiritual. Does an unbeliever say that? I agree with the law that it's good. Does an unbeliever say that? Paul saying, I hate sin. Does an unbeliever say that? He, and Paul distinguishes between I and dwelling sin. I'll get to that in a second. And he says, I myself serve the law of God. So there's enough evidence in this to show some of us commentators that this is describing a serious believer's ongoing daily struggle with indwelling sin. Some have tried to analyze it this way. This is a description of a person who's newly converted, 
uh, struggling with sin, but not doing so by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that's probably a legitimate position. We're going to get to the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 as we see. So, I'm at the bottom of the page then. Because I continue to sin, it feels like a bondage. It feels like a bondage. I just can't shake this temptation. I'm never going to get rid of this thing called indwelling sin. That's a fact. I'm going to walk with a limp the rest of my life. And that's since we're all kind of like Jacob. We have a limp. We still have indwelling sin in us. So here's some examples from, from our text. Again, I'm stressing that it feels like a bondage. It feels like a bondage because sin is ever present. Verse 14, I'm of the flesh sold into sin, or so it feels when I stumble. Paul says in 15, I do not, uh, I do, not do what I want. And in 16, I don't do what I want. Have you ever had that experience? You start the day by going, I don't want to be critical today. I don't want to have a judgmental thought today. I don't want to speak in a way that's dishonoring to Christ. I don't want to lust. I don't want to covet. Somebody needs to hit their mute button. Somebody needs to hit mute, please. Um, so sure you started the, the, the uh, I was driving, I was driving yesterday down 95 in Philadelphia. If you know the road I'm talking about, south of Philly, it is some of the worst road in the universe. And I said, don't complain, don't complain, don't complain, don't complain. Finally, I blurted it out. This is terrible highway. See, I, I just couldn't contain myself. Do you know the proportion of highway I'm talking about between the airport and the Delaware line? It should be blown up and repaved anyway. You think your car's going to fall apart driving. I said, don't complain. Janice doesn't want to hear you complain. She doesn't deserve that. Don't complain. Boom, out it came. She was with me in the car. Yeah. What? Right? I complained, honey. Sorry. But you also said something about the highway. No, that doesn't justify it. All right. So verse 18. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And I think what you want to do there is supply words. I don't have the ability to carry it out with consistent perfection. I don't have the ability to carry it out completely unhindered. I think it's permissible to supply those words in what Paul writes. So here's the million dollar question. What kind of person writes this? I'll give you the answer and then we'll unpack it. The kind of the person writes that what we've been studying is the kind of person who distinguishes between I and sin which dwells in me. You'll notice that Paul, as he works through this dilemma, he, he says, now as I stand back and look at the person struggling with sin, he identifies himself as I and then sin as something separate. This does not excuse sin. He can't say, like Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. No, that's not biblical Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity to say, well, I, I couldn't help myself. Sin made me do it. No, we're, we're, we're not slaves to sin. We don't have to sin. But Paul sees himself, his true eye, in his inner being, he delights in the law of God. His true eye is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. His true eye is in union with Christ. There's a new man there, and yet sin lies close at hand. He makes this distinction as the real person that he is. I think on the strength of that, this therefore is not describing 
an unbeliever. It's not describing a new believer struggling without the Holy Spirit, although that's not a bad uh, description. This is Paul, before he gets into chapter 8, trying to explain this tension and how it works out in our experience and what it feels like to struggle with sin. So let's answer that question. What kind of person writes this? We're at B now on the outline. And this text really outlines itself beautifully, very symmetrically. He describes our weakness in verse 14, restates our weakness in verse 18. Following 14, he describes our inner conflict in 15 and 16. He re, he, our inner conflict is restated in 19. And then he identifies our identity in 17, follows up in verse 20, our identity restated. Nice symmetry there, as we'll see in a second. Then the dilemma, the dilemma, the, the dilemma in summary, verse 21. The dilemma is unpacked, our warfare within, 22 and 23. And we hear these two cries in 24 and 25. And we'll look at the obvious next question as we get to the end of the handout. So, our weakness, describe. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, meaning the law is good. The law is spiritual means when it comes from the Holy Spirit, and in the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit is applying its beauty to our souls. How many of you love God's law? Yes, you do. That's the fruit of the Spirit in you, making you attractive to the revelation of God's character, making you desire... God and what he wants you to do. So there's the, the law is spiritual, not just of the letter, killing us without Christ in us. And then he says, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now that's the kind of language that causes some commentators to sit up and say, whoa, how could a true believer say that? He's already walked us through six, telling us we're not in bondage to sin. This is, so how could this be a true believer? Well, Notice that his tense is present tense. So where Paul has started us in six, brought us into seven, he's speaking in present tense. I am. And he doesn't say in the flesh. He says of the flesh. And I think that's a legitimate distinction. That's another way of saying I'm still a fallen creature. I live in a fallen world. I'm still totally depraved. Right? Total depravity, sin still affects everything about the human constitution. Sin affects my thinking, sin affects my emotions, sin affects my body. Even though you're saved, you're still totally depraved, as it were, although you're set free from the tyranny and the power of sin. It says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Sold under surviving sin, not reigning sin. Sin survives, but it's not raining. He still believes sin is bad. He has this inner conflict. Okay. This is one way of saying, I'm still attracted to sinful things. Are any of you attracted to sin? Well, if you've ever sinned, it's because you were attracted to it and you gave into it. So, all right. So that's one way of understanding verse 14. Here's our weakness. Our inner conflict described. I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, 
I agree with the law, that's good. That's what a believer would say. A believer would make this distinction between God's law is good, it prescribes a way of holiness, I want that, but unfortunately, I always don't bring it to pass. So you could put it this way. His desire to obey is greater than his ability. And isn't that our experience? Right? We have the desire to do the right thing. We, because of allowing sin to reign, we don't exercise the ability to bring it to pass consistently. I'm not saying the only thing we do is always give in to sin. That's not the case. By the grace of God, we are able to live righteous lives, increasingly being conformed to Jesus' image. And then he says, here's my identity. So now, now this person in union with Christ, now no longer the person in union with Adam, now the person risen with Christ, now the person freed from the tyranny of sin, but not its presence. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin is a squatter. So here's the diagram. It's no longer I who's sinning, but sin that dwells in me. When I give in to temptation, when I tell myself I'm not going to complain about how bad the highway is, and, and, and uh, so the power is in me to not do that. The Holy Spirit's power is in me. I had every ability not to do that. I had a good desire. It was a good desire. But I let sin reign in that moment, and I complained, which is something I didn't want to do. Sin is a squatter. So Paul, that's his truest identity. I and sin that dwells in me. That's not the truth of a believer. That's the truth of someone who's in union with Christ. So he then restates our weakness in 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me. He goes, ah, let me clarify. That is in my flesh. In uh, in this body where indwelling sin is trying to reign. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, dot, 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 perfectly, consistently, completely every time. I'm supplying those words, but I think given the context, it's legitimate. Why does he have the desire to do what is right? Because he's a believer. How how could you say that of of an unbeliever? Unbelievers are slaves to sin. They might have temporary fits where they, the self-serving reasons that they might have uh, to do the right thing. But there's a real struggle here between wanting to be righteous and not having the ability to carry it out consistently. And again, he's, he's setting you up for the question that's implied at the end of the text, where does the power come from? But I'll get there in a second. And he restates the inner conflict. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want. That's sins of omission. But, I, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing, sins of commission. There are sins of omission, sins of commission. So he's restating this inner conflict. There's good that I want to do. I don't always do it. There's evil I don't want to do. Oh, I do it. Is this going to be true of you to the day you die? Yes. Get used to it. It doesn't mean you have an excuse giving in to sin. It doesn't mean you should sit back and get comfy and get complacent. No. Romans 8 is going to follow. So hang in there. You can only do one thing at a time as he unpacks this. He then restates our identity in union with Christ. Now, if I do what I do not want, 
It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's a recapitulation of verse 17. So he's, he says, look, I have this struggle. I want to do what's right. I don't do it. I don't want to do what's wrong. I do it. What's going on? How do I explain that? He steps back and he looks at the person who says that. And he says, ah, here it is. The real eye is the one who wants to do good. The real eye is the one who does not want to do bad. And when he gives in to those temptations, it's because sin that still lives in him as a squatter is temporarily reigning in those moments. Not reigning constantly, he's giving in to temptation. Isn't that what James 3.2 says? We all stumble in many ways. We saw this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. As aliens and strangers, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. No, it, it, uh, um, he said, uh, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Peter is writing to, to explain to Christians why we're tempted. Why are we given to sin? Because there's a war going on in us. So there you go. His identity restated. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Here's the dilemma in summary. Verse 21. So, I find it to be a law. Now, I have the word principle in parentheses because in these next three verses, 21, 22, and 23, Paul's going to use the Greek word namas, often translated law, three different ways. Three different ways. Here, the word in your English law, is, is the, the idea is principle. So, Paul says, let me summarize this dilemma. I find, as I do this analysis of why I don't do what I want to do, why I do the things, why I don't do the things that I want to do, as he tries to do this analysis and he steps back and sees who the true Paul is. So, I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. How many of you made a New Year's resolution to pray more during the coming year? I want to pray more. Well, I can't see hands, which is fine. I want to read my Bible more. Were those good resolutions? Absolutely. Did you keep them? Probably not. I'm going to covet less. I'm going to lust less. I'm going to be critical less. I'm going to worship more. I'm going to watch less TV. I'm going to fill in the blank. You, you know yourself to be a weak, fallen, frail failure with respect to everything you want to do. <laughs> so there's a principle that when I want to do right, and it's a good thing to want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Maybe we hear echoes there of Genesis 4 where God says to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If not, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So here's the desire to do what's right, the, the, the desire not to do what's wrong. There it is. Sin is crouching at the door, the door and you give it the slightest opening, boom, sin slides in. Uh, and, and seeks to tempt you. Evil, indwelling sin, lies close at hand. We want to call sin evil, nothing else. 
And it must be that when I gave in to these temptations, whatever they were, I really didn't believe sin was evil. How many of you, how many of you want to have fellowship with evil? You want evil in your mind. You want evil in your mouth. You want evil in your imagination. You want evil in your heart. No, we don't want that. We don't want that. That's what he's calling and dwelling sin, evil. So here's the dilemma in summary. I find it, I find it to be a law, a principle. This is the I need to live according to this principle. When I want to do what is right, I should expect what? Resistance. I should expect evil to find a way to subvert that desire, to offer me a substitute, to lead me down a different path. I should expect that. Why would we expect any different? The true eye that wants to do good has indwelling sin still there. It's there to the day you die. The dilemma unpacked. Here's the warfare within. For I delight in the law of God. Second instance of the Greek word namas. Here it refers to law as in the precepts of God, his commandments. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the language of a serious Christian. Loving God's law because it, it, it reveals the beauty of God, something believers long to see more. It prescribes the answer to the question, Jesus how do I love you more? Jesus' answer is, if you love me, you will obey me. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you want what is good for your soul, what will bring glory to God. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you want to reflect on this earth back to God, the glory of his own holiness. The law reveals that, right? Christians ache to show God more of his glory in the way we think to reflect it back to him. So I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Here's the I in my inner being. What's going on? Delight in the law of God. That's not where the desire to sin comes from. In my inner being, I delight in the law of God. The Holy Spirit is producing that. But I see in my members another law, third instance in this text, where the Greek word namas, in case that's not clear to you, it's N-O-M-S, namas, from which we get antinomian against the law. People who say, now that I'm, that's a, it's the idea that set up this whole study at the end of chapter five. If we're sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If that's so, let's go on sinning that grace might abound even more. That's called antinomianism. Doesn't matter how you live now that you're a Christian. And Paul then begins to unpack how abhorrent that kind of thinking is. You're going to live contrary to who you really are, which is in union with Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. Why would you think that way? So 22, uh, of verse 23, but I see in my members another law. Here the Greek word, namas, means force. So in 22, law, principle, precepts, namas in 22, and then in 23, but I see in my members another law waging war, another force waging war against the law of my mind uh, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, that language of captivity is somewhat troubling to those who walk with Paul through chapter 6, 
where he said, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're free from the tyranny of sin, not his presence, but you're free from sin as a taskmaster. Why would he speak in such a way as sin making him captive? That seems retrogressive to where he has brought us uh, through his reasoning all the way to the end of seven here. And, and, and the answer is, the answer is, it feels like a captivity because sin is never going away. And, and I easily give in to doing the things I don't want to do and not doing the things that I want to do. I, I don't know any other way to explain it. And to do justice to the way Paul describes his truest identity, and it's not I, but sin that dwells in me. But it shows you why some commentators say this couldn't possibly be a mature Christian because that's language contradicting where Paul's already brought us through chapter 6. Just want to be transparent about that. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Because he continues to struggle with sin, it feels like a captivity. What, what are we longing for? To be completely free from the presence of sin. We're not. We're going to be in the presence of sin to the day we die. So to some extent, it feels like a captivity. Then we have two cries. Where does he bring us? Two cries. Honest distress and hope. Honest distress. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to set me free from indwelling sin? Right? I, I, this is not the existence I want to live in forever. I don't want to be I and sin indwells me. I want to be I without sin ever there. Translated, I want to have a resurrection body. I want to live in a body not subject to sin, sickness, sadness, sorrow, or death. When are we going to get that body? At the final resurrection. We don't have it now. But this is, the, I believe, this is the cry of a serious believer. Increasingly, we want an existence completely free from the presence of sin. And believers don't think that way. They're not even making those kinds of distinctions. Wretched man that I am, as it were, from the perspective of giving into indwelling sin when it wants to reign, who will set me free? He wants a resurrection body made after the image of Jesus' resurrection body that is free from the presence of sin. And here's his cry of hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, so it's, so it's through Christ that we're going to get this. And he's going to unpack what that looks like in 8. So then, let me, he's saying, let me wrap up chapter 7 for you. I myself, the true I, here we go. I myself, this true I, am dwelt by the Holy Spirit. I am union with Christ. I am no longer slave to sin. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Every good intention here, when the law of God says do this, I want to do it. When the law of God says don't do that, I don't want to do it. That's where this desire comes from. Christ has given me that grace. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law, the power of sin. So I'm a walking contradiction. And then this raises the obvious next question. Does this conflict and accompanying feeling of condemnation separate me from God's love? And where's the help to overcome? So if you walk with Paul and you say, hey, this really is my experience. I give in too easily to temptation. 
I don't consistently do the things I want to do. I consistently uh, do the, th don't, do all right, sins of omission and commission, you know where I'm going with that. You can easily feel condemned. Easily feel condemned. Live with this big burden. I'm just not a good Christian. I consistently disappoint the Lord. Paul anticipates that coming out of seven, you're going to be feeling this way, down. And so he catapults you into a new way of thinking, chapter 8, verse, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the thing you need to hear, having walked through this territory of explaining how easily you give in to temptation. So we're left with the question at the end of 7, how will you, in fact, weaken sin's power? The answer is in chapter 8. What assurance do you need that, that even though you struggle constantly with sin, he's, God still loves you? He starts 8 with, there's no condemnation of those in Christ, and he ends 8 with what? Nothing in heaven and earth can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's, that's the logic. Paul is careful He's pastoral, he's sensitive, he's systematic, he's thoughtful, he's exegeting your experience, he's exegeting your heart, and he's given you all that you need for this battle with indwelling sin. So that's why we need to read on into chapter 8. Don't ever do the Christian life by ending at 7. <laughs> read on to chapter 8. And he's gonna, we're going to look at those uh, next week. We'll start next week with chapter 8. So we did, in fact, get through seven. Good. Um, there you go. Well, I get to pray for us then. So let's conclude with prayer. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that in a world of darkness and sin and misery and uh, helplessness and hopelessness in and of ourselves, you have broken in through Jesus Christ, the life giver, the bondage breaker, our law keeper, the one who joyfully laid down his life in our place on the cross that we would never be condemned in this struggle with sin. We need the hope and the assurance of the gospel. Thank you. Thank you that Paul spent a good deal of time working up to chapter 7 in Romans, detailing the gospel. He wouldn't want to describe this battle with indwelling sin under any other terms. He set the table for us. He's got us feasting on the grace and the love of God and the sufficiency of Christ and there relishing who Jesus is, building our identity around what Jesus has done, not what we do. He then walks us into this conflict with sin that makes us feel wretched, that leads us to suspect we under condemnation, that either, either drives us to legalism, just trying to be good by keeping the law, or drives us into antinomianism, not even trying and giving up and saying it doesn't matter how I live, uh, grace covers my sin. He wants us to avoid those extremes. He wants us to stay in the fight but to know that the true I, the I that is fighting, delights in the law of God, is in Christ, has the Holy Spirit. Well, we'll talk about him in chapter 8. 
And so thank you for the, for the genius of helping us with our struggle. This explains why we feel so frail. And uh, so we pray for our own hearts to be more and more attuned to the workings of indwelling sin, more and more attuned to the true eye, the eye that serves joyfully the law of God with our minds, the true eye that the more light we have there, the more life we have there, the more sight of Christ we have as the true eye, the more we see and sense the workings of indwelling sin. Save us from the wretched working of sin. Evil, he calls it. Evil, evil, evil. Would sin be more evil to our spiritual senses? Help us, Lord. And thank you for the forgiveness that's ours through the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the grace that's ours through his cross. Thank you for the life that's ours through his resurrection. Bless my brothers and sisters. Now refresh them in the gospel. Encourage them in their worship. Equip them to give you the glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving, blessing that you deserve in our worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week for the start of Romans 8. Thank you so much thank for joining so us. Much. That was awesome. Good. Hi, Hempels. Good. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye, buddy. Have a great week. You too. You see too. you soon. God bless you. Bye, Rosenfelders. Hello. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Dory.